0: And Andy's now going to come and speak to us from Jeremiah uh, chapter 2, series we're going through, Jeremiah chapter 2, which if you've got a, a red church Bible, if you would like one, uh, do raise your hand and, and someone will uh, come and pass one to you. And if you've got a red church Bible, it's on page 756. That's Jeremiah uh, chapter 2. Uh, but before Andy comes and speaks to us this morning, let's let's pray as we have his word opened up to us. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the power that it has. Father, we pray now for Andy as he comes to speak to us this morning. Thank you for what he's prepared. Thank you for the message that you've laid on his heart. And we pray as we hear your word spoken to us, that your, your spirit would do something in us, that it would open our hearts to receive what you have to say. Strengthen Andy now. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Andy.
1: Have you ever seen that? <clears throat> I've seen that. Phosphorescence in the ocean. Marvellous thing, like thousands of stars twinkling in the waves as your boat carves through the water. Brilliant. It's astonishing. As you go through life, uh, we find, we see astonishing things. Hopefully, when I click this... Oh, there we go. That's astonishing. I've never seen them, but they're in Morocco, apparently. Goats that climb trees. Um, staying with goats. Look at those mountain goats. That's unbelievable, isn't it? It's almost a vertical sheer rock. You don't know how they do it, but, uh, but they hang on. Astonishing things we come across in life. If you're into sport, that's another astonishing thing, isn't it? Uh, Leicester City, was it two seasons ago? Winning the Premier League. Absolutely astonishing. There's something even more astonishing to me about Leicester, and that's that you can take these nine random letters, put them together like that, and try to convince me that you pronounce it Leicester. There's a book in the Bible called Esther, and if I said that's how you spell it, you'd you'd think I was mad. But uh, I've started this way because in our passage today, in Jeremiah chapter 2, There are these words. Be astonished. Be astonished in verse 12. In your version it may be, be appalled. It's be staggered. What are we meant to be appalled about? What are we meant to be staggered about? What are we meant to be astonished about? That people, given all the facts, given all the evidences, could forsake the living God. That's what our passage is all about. And we get it in chapter 2. So we're, just before I read it, um, very quickly, let's flash through some history. We had uh, some of this last week. Uh, the green bit and the orange bit, that's kind of the shape of the land of Israel, as it was about 3,000 years ago. Uh, in about 930 BC, the land was split into two kingdoms. So the green bit is the kingdom of Israel, and the orange bit is the kingdom of Judah. A couple of hundred years after that well so before that happened i've got an arrow going down from one to the other that was because that northern kingdom very quickly fell into idolatry and a lot of people chronicles tells us didn't like where they lived anymore and so people who lived in those tribes in the northern kingdom they came south and so judah that used to just be two tribes became a a, a conglomeration of all the tribes uh, of uh, of israel well, they lasted about, the top kingdom lasted about 200 years, but in 721 BC, the northern kingdom was attacked by the Assyrians and was completely destroyed and effectively wiped off the map. And it was a hundred years after that, roughly 626 BC, that Jeremiah the prophet began his ministry. And that was about 800 years after the children of Israel had come into that land uh, in the first place. So, Jeremiah is speaking roughly 626 BC onwards, he speaks for something like 40 years, um, and he is telling people that there's a judgment coming. And that judgment came in 586 BC, when the same fate that, that the Northern Kingdom suffered was suffered by the southern kingdom. So the kingdom of Judah was overrun by, this time it was the Babylonians, they overran the country, they destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple and carried the people away into exile. So that happened in 586 BC, but Jeremiah, 40 years before that, was predicting that event, was telling the people uh, that uh, this judgment was going to come upon them. Now this map, don't worry about it at the moment, um, it's just that in our reading we've got so many names, all those names, are, they're going to come up. So as they come up, uh, I'll just pause and maybe we'll point to something uh, on that map again. Hopefully that will be helpful. So Jeremiah chapter 2, because it's got all those funny names in it, I thought it might be easier just to read the passage and keep pausing every now and again uh, for, for comment, just realise that... I won't be able to read the passage unless I've got those on. (laughs) So Jeremiah, uh, chapter 2, and we're going to read the first 19 verses. Let's remember what we learned last week. Jeremiah is a prophet. Um, I can describe a prophet no better than Jeremiah chapter 1. In verse 9, God says, I have put my words in your mouth. That's what a prophet is, clear and simple. And there was a period in human history when that's how God chose to bring his living word to the people. He gave his word to individuals, and we know them as prophets. And we also remember that he was a young man. God uses young people in his church. It's, it's brilliant. Um, just reminded of Dan. Thanks, Dan, for leading our service. Dan, believe it or not, is younger than me. Now, God, <laughs> it's a blessing to have young folk, and God uses, down through history, God has used young people. And we've seen it in this church and it's been such an encouragement and uh, such a blessing to us. Uh, he was described as a child in chapter 1. That's probably not as we would understand a child, not you know a four-year-old or a six-year-old. But uh, most consent, the consensus seems to be that he was probably in his early 20s. So let's read the first uh, three verses of chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to me, says Jeremiah. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem... And this is the message that God gave him. I remember the devotion of your youth. How, as a bride, you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. And all who devoured her were held guilty. And disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. We'll, we'll pause there. So God through Jeremiah is taking the people back those 800 years to the time of the Exodus when God himself had led those people, the Israelites, through the desert, had led them to the promised land. And he uses, he uses the picture of the most perfect and intimate marriage. And he says... When he says, I remember your youth, he's not saying, I remember when you were young people. He's saying, I remember when the nation had just been formed, just started. All those years ago, it was like a perfect marriage. You were my bride, and you loved me, and you followed me, even through the desert. Uh, it, and, and you were given such a privileged position, and you knew what it was. You were set apart the Bible says. You were set apart for the Lord. The very first fruits of his growing kingdom. We now look back on a church of millions and millions and millions, but these were the infancy of God's children, God's family being put together, and they were to be the first fruits. And God reminded them how he had protected them. That's what it means when it says all those people around who would have devoured you. Uh, And we read in the book of Exodus and elsewhere in the Old Testament how God protected the people of Israel against the fiercest of enemies. That's how things once were, says God. Well, let's read on from verses 4 to 9. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob. House of Jacob is another name for all the people of Israel. Jacob, we read about him in the Old Testament, and his name was changed by God to Israel. That's where we get the word from. So Jacob was Israel, became Israel, and he had 12 sons, and those 12 sons largely, it's not exactly uh, name for name, but largely became the 12 tribes uh, of the clans of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought?" and darkness a land where no one travels and no one lives and i brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable the priests did not ask where is the lord those who deal with the law did not know me the leaders rebelled against me, the prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. Therefore I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Well, let's pause there again. That's quite a difficult last verse, isn't it? It doesn't seem fair that the charges of God are going to be brought not only to those people, but to their children as well. But this is what Jeremiah was saying. His message was, things have been so dreadful in the past... And they're not going to get any better. Remember those 40-odd years before this judgment's going to come. Another whole generation is going to grow up in that time, but they're not going to get any better. And that's the core of this message. God is saying, I've seen what you've done in the past, and I've seen what you're going to do in the future, and that's why this judgment is coming. That's why my charges are against you. And this is a message for everyone, for all the clans of, of Jacob judgment is coming why because from that intimate relationship that we used to enjoy says God you've strayed so far there's now such a distance between us you used to follow me but now you're following idols worthless idols and at the beginning of the passage he says what fault did your fathers find in me says God What is God saying? He's saying, Was I to blame? Can you point the finger at me? Was I not faithful? Was I not true? Did I not keep my promises to you? They're rhetorical questions. They answer themselves God is not to blame. And He reminds them that with Him leading them, they were able to do the impossible. And he reminds them about that time 800 years ago when they followed him through the desert place. And he describes the desert. Look what it is. It's barren. It's lifeless. Nothing grows. No one lives. No one travels through that place. But God reminded them, no one lives there, but you did. For 40 years you lived there because he provided for them. No one travels through that place, but, but you did. You traveled through that wilderness with God at their head. He had done the impossible with them. And finally, he says, I brought you into this land, this land of plenty, this land where you can feast yourselves. In other words, God is saying, the promise I made to take you from the slavery that you endured in Egypt to take you through the desert into the land that I promised your forefathers, Abraham. I kept that promise. That was the relationship that God through Jeremiah is saying that's what it used to be like. But look at it now, he says. Look at the people. The people, they don't ask, where is that God? Wouldn't you have thought they would have remembered? But they're not asking that God who did the impossible with them is not in their thoughts. He's not involved in their lives. And it says, it says that's what the people were saying. Where is, they're not asking that question, where is the God? But it gets worse. And he says, the priests, the very ones who God anointed to speak on his behalf, to lead the people in worship, even the priests, they're not saying, where is that God? that wonderful, marvellous, glorious God that does the impossible. And what about the teachers of the law? They were responsible for God's word. That was the law. They were responsible for keeping it up to date. They were responsible for teaching it to the people. But, sis, they don't know me. They don't know me. The leaders... Those civic leaders who were kind of setting the rules, setting the legislation, if you like, setting the parameters by which the Israelites should live. What about them? It says, they rebelled against me. They actively brought in things and laws and ways of living that took people away from the living God. And the prophets, people like Jeremiah, What a privileged position they were in, where God himself, the living God, put his living word in their mouths. It says the prophets were now looking to Baal, a foreign god, a worthless idol, and they were using their time and their energy and their voices to speak about him. That's how far they had come. That's the distance which had grown between God and God and his people. So let's go on. And here we get the first of these funny words. So it says, God continues, cross over to the coasts of Kittim and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. And here's our key verse. Be astonished. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water so here if we want to look, just look at the map behind me we get the two K's, it says look to Kittim, that's up there on the left uh, and uh, you might have in uh, a modern translation translated as Cyprus so the island of Cyprus just off the coast it, it means Cyprus but it also means the boundaries of the countries beyond that, so uh, so the the coastland of Turkey and of Greece which would continue if you went that way, that's Kittim uh, down on the right hand side uh, the eastern side is Kedar I put there Psalm 120 verse because that talks about Kedar and it says woe is me if I dwell in the tents of Kedar it, they were black tents they still are actually black tents nomadic people but who didn't follow the living God and the psalmist says if, if I lived amongst them oh woe is me that would be a dreadful thing and so what God is saying is look to the east look to the west Look beyond your borders. That's really the message he's saying. Look beyond your borders. Has anything ever happened like this before? The people creating this great distance between the living God and themselves. He says, look at them. They don't exchange their gods. They are faithful to their gods, even though it says they're no gods at all. These people around in these nations, they were following images. They were following objects they were worshiping animals uh, non-gods god describes them as because they just can't do anything they're worshiping things and 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 be animals that, that can't think that can't speak that have no power that, that are absolutely useless and yet god says even those people who serve even those gods with a small g, they're faithful to them. They don't leave them. And that's why he's saying, be astonished at what how you have treated me, says God. And I thought, you know, as I was preparing this, it's the same today, isn't it? When you look around the world, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful because so many people, it is a product of the culture in which they've been born into and brought up into, but people are still following animals or holding animals as holy things or, or bowing down before objects or, or images. And yet sometimes don't we find ourselves looking at those religious activities, looking at those adherents of those things and saying to ourselves, oh, sometimes they put us to shame. Don't don't we say that? They do. Their faithfulness to these non-gods sometimes put us to shame. The way that they hold on to their gods, honour their gods, puts the Christians to shame about how we honour and hold on to the living God. And God says it's astonishing. This is astonishing. We ought to be astonished at at what has happened he said, between for, about our relationship um, between us and the living God. And he goes on to say, my people, they've committed two sins. And here he brings in the idea of living waters. And he says, they've forsaken me. And he describes himself as a living spring spring water is great. We've just got some folk who've just come back from Israel and, and uh, you're welcome back. I'm sure you had a great time. It's been our privilege, more than me, to go there several times and, and to see uh, up in the foothills of, uh, of Mount Hermon, the, the, the River Jordan just bubbling up out of the ground, how, it, how the Jordan is formed there. Uh, or you might have walked through Hezekiah's Tunnel, you know, 2,800 years old, a structure uh, that was designed to, to feed the Gion Spring, uh, the waters of the Gion Spring down into Jerusalem and it's incredible for me to think that that Gion Spring is still springing water those foothills of Mount Hermon are still springing water just as they were a hundred years ago a thousand years ago three thousand years ago that's the image that God is painting of himself I'm the living spring we get a picture a feeling of of something alive and bubbling and real and life-giving and refreshing and he says you've exchanged that by digging your own cisterns that's a hole in the ground well again if you've just come back from Israel you probably saw some cisterns we go down them, it's great go down into the old cisterns because water's so precious out in that land but what was in them? just a little puddle of dirty water stagnant water and that's the picture that God is bringing to his people that's what you've done You've exchanged this living, life-giving water that never ends, that's eternal, and you've exchanged it for a hole in the ground that you dug yourself and you've filled with water and you've said to yourself, let me, let me drink from that. Oh, you might be happy uh, that it, it's something, you know? Uh, it, it's not. You'd rather have that than nothing. But it's got to be worse, hasn't it? It's got to be a bad choice giving, uh, given a living spring or, or that stale water that sits in a cistern that you've built for yourself. They're the sins that God presents the people. That's what you've done. You've forsaken me and you've gone your own way. You've dug your own cisterns. You're drinking from your own stagnant water. Well, then he takes them back to, do you remember the, the green bit, the kingdom of Israel, how I said in 721 BC, they were completely destroyed by the Assyrian Empire. He takes them back to that and he asks this question in verse 14. Is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? Why then has he become plunder? Lions have roared, they have growled at him, they have laid waste his land. His towns are burned and deserted. And also, we get two more words here that are on our map, also the men of Memphis, uh, you might have got noth in, in your Bibles, uh, and Tapanes have shaved the crown of your head. So uh, really here, he's just taking their minds back to the people who used to live in that northern kingdom, the Israelites, in that land of plenty. And, and he, says, he says through Jeremiah, were they born slaves? No, they were rescued from slavery. God himself took them out of slavery, out of Egypt. He brought them into that wonderful land. They were free. But look at them now. It says the lions have roared. Their, their places are just laid waste and they've become the slaves of the Assyrians. Now those two words, Memphis and Tapanese, they're, they're towns down there in Egypt. So that, that uh, bottom box, that's over Egypt. And we're not absolutely certain what this means when it says the people from those towns have shaved the crown of Israel's head. But uh, the consensus again seems to be, or the likely meaning is that, you might remember last week, The king on the throne of Judah at the time was Josiah. And Josiah, he started well as a king, but he didn't finish well. That's always a tragedy. When we start our Christian faith well, but we don't end it well. And Josiah did so many things to try to bring people back to the Lord, to try to rid the land of idolatry, but then he himself just succumbed. And he picked a fight with the people from Egypt who were going through the land and who God had told, the living God had told these folk from Egypt, don't fight Josiah. He's not your enemy. But for some reason, Josiah picked a fight with them. And though they tried to get out of it and said, we're not fighting you, he persisted and he was shot with an arrow and he was killed. And that could well be the likely meaning of these verses, how the, the, how the head of Israel, the, the, the crown of the head of Israel, has been shaved by the people of Egypt. We don't know. So we'll, we'll just part that. It's not, it's, not, uh, it's not positional in terms of what we're studying this morning. But that, that could be what it means. So God is really saying, look, you were free. The people of Israel were free. And now they've become slaves. Let's read on. The last verses that we have this morning, 17 down to 19. Have you not brought this on yourselves? This is still God speaking. Have you not brought this on yourselves? By forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way. Now, why go to Egypt to drink water from the shihor well that's on our map shihor, that's another name for the Nile but it's a dark name it means the dark waters it's like when we talked about Kedar which were the dark tents of the unbelievers now he's talking about the dark waters of the the river Nile why go to Egypt to drink water from the shihor and why go to Assyria and drink water from the river it's just called the river but it's actually meaning that the Euphrates... It's like if you were in London today and you said, I want to go down to the river, you wouldn't have to say, I'm going down to the River Thames. You just know that's the river you mean. If you're in London, it's the River Thames. And the Euphrates was such a significant big river uh, of Assyria that if you say, let's go to Assyria and go to the river, you know what river they're talking about. And that's up there uh, on the right, the river Euphrates. So again... God is pointing beyond their borders. Why are you going down to Egypt to drink their waters? Why are you going up to Assyria to drink their waters? Again, he's just drawing this picture of how they have forsaken him, the spring of living water. And in a way, he's saying, he's inferring that they're not only going—they're not physically going there to drink. But what were they doing? Well, they lived in uh, times of turmoil. And throughout the history, as we read in the Old Testament, the Israelites several times were frightened about their neighbours, what their neighbours were going to do for them. And rather than going to God for help, they went to Egypt for help. So if it was the Assyrians who were coming down from the north, they'd go to the Egyptians at the south and say, can you help us fight the Assyrians? And if it was the Egyptians coming up from the south to fight them, they'd go north to the Assyrians and say, can you come? Can you come and help us? They were putting their faith in the armies of the nations around. So that's one way in which they were having connection, with long connections with those countries uh, around. And another way, of course, was that they were worshipping their gods. Again, these non-gods with a small g. That's what they were doing. Instead of putting, and I like the authorised version here in in verse 19, it says, when you forsake the Lord your God, and you have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. And if you have an authorised version, you'll see there it describes him as the Lord of hosts. And that brings to reality what God is saying here. In other words, the Lord is is the one with the mighty army. All the armies of heaven are at his disposal. And yet you've not gone to him. You've gone, when you needed help, you went north to Assyria. You went south to Egypt. But you didn't go to this God that you've forsaken, the God who is the Lord of hosts. And that's the message that we had this morning. That is the astonishing thing And it is negatively astonishing. That's what this last verse says. What you have done is a very bitter thing. What you have done is an awful thing. And that's why Jeremiah is pointing the people to the judgment that is going to come. As I've been thinking about these words, these verses through this last couple of weeks, trying to think, well, what is the application for us? Because, you know, as Phil said last week, absolutely rightly, we have to put ourselves in the position of the hearers. We have to see that this is God's living word this morning. And God's living word is coming to us. So just as Jeremiah has got these words from God for the people then, God himself has got these same words for us this morning. And it may be, that God is saying to you, as I'm sure he's been saying to me over this last fortnight, there was a time when things were better. There was a time when we were closer. There was a time, God might say to you this morning and to me, that you loved me, that you followed me. But now... There's a great distance between us. And what you've done is you've turned to your own ways. God says, you've dug your own cisterns and that's what you're drinking from, these leaky cisterns where the water eventually will just go stagnant. And you've turned your back on the God Almighty, the living spring. And if that is what God is saying to you this morning, it could be we might feel quite despondent about it. And as we go on, we realize that God is saying to us, it is not my fault. God has not been unfaithful. God has not changed his ways. God has not stopped loving us in exactly the same way as he's always loved us. It is our fault. It's the decisions that we've made has created this distance. But rather than going home despondent, as I guess the people would have done in Jeremiah's day, we have the rest of the Bible. And the rest of the Bible makes it clear that there is a remedy. For the people of Israel and Judah back then, there was no remedy. Jeremiah's message was, because of what you've done and because of what you're going to continue to do, there's going to be a judgment. But for us, there's a remedy. And the remedy is the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus, on a certain day, was travelling through Samaria. And as he travelled and he was tired, and you might know this story, we find it in John and chapter 4, he stopped by a well and a lady came. A lady who is probably like the person that I'm trying to describe now. Yeah, there's still aspects of religion about her because she tried to talk religion with the Lord Jesus. But actually, her life was a mess. It was messed up. And Jesus sits with this lady and, to open a conversation, asks for a drink. And they go on and the conversation kind of developed, well, you've got nothing to draw the water with. But then Jesus comes through with these words, cutting through all the religiosity of her life, recognizing the brokenness of her position. He says to her, oh, if only you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you for a drink, you would have asked him And he would have given you living water. That's the message of today. And if you go on and read the rest of John in chapter 4, you'll find that he later says, points to the water in the well down there in Samaria. It's like him pointing to the water in the cistern that we've dug. And he said, anyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give will never thirst again. And that water will well up within him to eternal life. It's Jesus who points us back to this living spring that is still available for us. Let's just remember those words again as we close. Jesus might be saying to you and into your situation today, if only you knew the gift of God. If only you knew He would give you living water and you would never thirst again. And this living spring would well up within you for eternal life. My key word uh, this morning has been astonishing, isn't it? I showed you pictures of astonishing things. We've gone through the scriptures and said how astonishing it is that given all the facts, how people have created this distance between them and the living God the message this morning has been it is an astonishing thing that we have forsaken the Lord Jesus but I tell you in the New Testament there's something even more astonishing and that is that that same Lord Jesus the living God himself went to a cross and said Eloi Eloi lama sabachthani my God My God, why have you forsaken me? And that's the message of hope and joy that we can take back to our homes. It's astonishing. We should have been saying, that was our cross. Those words should have been our words. But instead, Jesus took the cross. Jesus said the words. Jesus took my place. Amen.